Hello, and welcome to the YJBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news stories from across the Yale community. I am Mara. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Microbial Pathogenesis at Yale. And I'm Samantha, a first-year Master of Public Health student in the Department of Health Policy. So, Mara, what do you have for us today? Today we have three exciting stories. First one has to do with the newest grant from Department of Energy. The second one is about the guideline change about in the mammogram procedure. And the third one is about transgender patients' experiences in healthcare. Sounds good, let's jump into it. Starting with the news from the Yale Energy Sciences Institute, what's going on? Um, so a researcher at the Yale Energy Sciences Institute, Professor Xu Hu, just received a $1.25 million award from the US Department of Energy. Uh, the award will help build a water-splitting device designed for the large-scale production of green hydrogen. Great, so backing up a little bit, who is Professor Xu Hu? Professor Xu Hu leads uh, a research laboratory that helps generate uh, fuels and chemicals from light. Okay, cool. So getting back to the recent innovation, what is green hydrogen? Green hydrogen, or also known as clean hydrogen, um, is when hydrogen gas is produced by using environmentally friendly methods, like renewable energy sources or other low-carbon technologies. Um, because conventional hydrogen production methods usually rely on fossil fuels and can result in significant greenhouse gas emissions, um, the clean hydrogen production aims to minimize and eliminate this carbon footprint. That is very interesting. So why is the DOE, the Department of Energy, funding this? What is its goal? So it turns out the DOE actually has several grants that it awarded, and the end goal is to reach 100% clean electrical grid by 2035 and a carbon emissions to net zero by 2050. Quite ambitious, don't you think? That is incredibly ambitious, and I can't wait to see it happen, hopefully. Um, so really delving into the nitty gritty of how this innovation works and what the technology is really about. Um, yeah, how does it work? So Professor Hu described it as a device that is driven by solar energy and this light, when it's captured, it can start the process that will eventually split water into its two components, namely oxygen and hydrogen. The hydrogen is then collected and is used as an energy source and oxygen is just released into the atmosphere. That's great. I think we need we need a lot more oxygen compared to hydrogen in the atmosphere. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, now, getting back to how this will be relevant to the listeners. Why, why do we need this? How is it helpful to the nation? How is it relevant to our everyday life? So, first and most direct impact is that clean hydrogen will have to reach our goals of getting to clean energy, zero carbon emissions, um, and will help us to have a more sustainable lifestyle. But it will also lead to creation of well-paying engineering, manufacturing, sales, service jobs, including across the state of Connecticut, at least according to the DOE's speakers. Great, that's so exciting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, the very exciting stuff for the DOE. Can't wait to see how this project turns out. So, Samantha, let's talk about the other story that we have in mind. Right, so this other story is about the change in the guidelines for when women should start being screened uh, for breast cancer. 
Um, let's start by talking about what were the old guidelines before this change. Yeah, so very briefly, the old guidelines were that women should start getting tested every other year at the age of 50. And what are the new guidelines? The new guideline is to actually start 10 years earlier at the age of 40. Okay, and who, who are the target people for those guidelines? So this new change in guidelines is really aimed at women aged 40 with average risk of breast cancer and also women with dense breasts. And I know that that is kind of a confusing statement, so I'll break it down a little bit. Um, in terms of your risk of breast cancer, it's really hard to understand what your average risk is if you haven't really done a lot of research. And so me also being confused, I did a little bit um, of digging and I looked particularly at a resource from the Susan G. Komen Foundation. And I found that there is a commonly used breast cancer as risk assessment tool, also known as the Gale model. And basically what this model does is looks at your at seven different risk factors. So that would be your age, your age at your first period, your age at the time of the birth of your first child, if you've had children at all, your family history, the number of past breast biopsies, and the number of past breast biopsies showing atypical hyperplasia. And lastly, your race and ethnicity. So that's really how you can um, find a resource to figure out what your risk is of breast cancer. And then in terms of, you know, people, women having dense breasts, how do you know if you have dense breasts? This part was a little bit complicated um, because when I did research into it, it said that only a radiologist looking at a mammogram can tell, and this is according to cancer.gov, so I trust them. Um, and so that little tidbit is confusing because if they're recommending you to go get mammograms and saying that it's for women with dense breasts, how will you know unless you had a mammogram? I did not know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all the female listeners, <laughs> please go to that website. We'll drop the link in the description and check it out. See how the guidelines apply to you. Um, and can you talk a bit, a little bit about why is it important to talk about this information? Well, it's really important to talk about this information because breast cancer is the second most common cancer in women in the US and it does not affect women equally. So there are definitely race disparities in terms of um, the death rate. So the death rate is highest among black women and more specifically, black women are actually equally like likely to get breast cancer, but they're more likely to die from it. So talking about advanced screening and just the importance of taking care of your um, breast health is really important in just spreading the word and preventing this type of cancer. Can you talk a little bit about, are there any other steps that women can take to prevent breast cancer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the steps to prevent breast cancer are along the same vein of the steps you take in order to lead a healthy lifestyle, among those being, you know, exercise, maintaining a certain weight to be healthy, um, and, you know, doing self-examinations, and really all of the different ways that you can just take care of yourself. And it's also relevant to know that when the guidelines were implemented, it actually helped reduce the emergence of breast cancer and the deaths from breast cancer, because when caught early, it can be prevented. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so ladies also remember that it varies individually. Nobody is the same. So please consult your doctor about anything that troubles you that could result in breast cancer problems. 
Yeah, and just like one little final note, um, don't be alarmed when you start screening. You do not have to screen every year. Your The efficacy and the benefit of getting screened regularly does not increase by getting screened every year. So definitely keep along the recommendation of getting screened every two years. All right, moving on to our last little bit of news, uh, the topic being transgender people's experience with healthcare. What can you tell us? There's a new study published in the Annals of Family Medicine that explores 30 transgender people and how they were interacting with their healthcare clinicians. Cool, and what was the purpose of the study? So the research were asking questions like, how are transgender people getting healthcare? Um, what are their experiences? How are physicians behaving when they're learning their patient is transgender or undergoing therapy? Um, and how are patients perceiving um, what their clinicians are doing in response? And what did the study find? So unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, the study has found that patients um, sometimes question the motives behind their clinicians' questions and they perceive them as irrelevant, invasive, and sometimes stigmatizing. Uh, for example, there was a story where a patient was asked absolutely irrelevant questions when they came into clinic about respiratory issues. Um, it also looks like transgender patients are receiving poorer care after clinicians learn that they are transgender. Um, and this results in patients sometimes choosing to not disclose their gender identity, even though it has a risk uh, associated with their healthcare conditions. That is extremely unfortunate and very poor treatment of transgender people. So are there any recommendations in order to ameliorate this problem? Yeah, so the researchers have some recommendations for clinicians mostly to try to ask only medically relevant questions and try to do it in a non-stigmatizing way to make patients feel more comfortable and also document information in a way that is non-stigmatizing towards the patient. It is also important for clinicians and I would say for all of us to advocate for those patients, to advocate for non-stigmatizing behavior um, and to aim to change this kind of culture uh, by just changing the guidelines, the procedures and also just trying to be more humane in your behavior. Absolutely, that is so important. And are there any little bits of background information about the people who conducted this study that we might want to know? I found it really interesting that one of the researchers involved in the study, Dr. Ash Alpert, are actually a clinician in the Yale School of Medicine. Not only they interact with patients, but as part of their work, they investigate ways to improve the experiences and outcomes of transgender people, including transgender people with cancer. So I think having somebody on the team who is so closely related to clinical care makes the study even more relevant. Well, thank you, Mara, for sharing this story with us. Yes, and I hope you guys learned from these three stories as much as we did, because I think it was a pretty interesting week for science. It was super interesting. I love that. All right. Well, folks, thanks for staying with us this whole time, and we hope to see you again next week. Hope to see you again next week. <laughs>